So let's pray together, and then we'll study. Father in heaven, bless us today as we open your word. And uh, open our hearts, give us understanding, and the ability to stand under uh, how you lead and guide us individually. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're studying a book called Nehemiah, and some of you are just joining us today for the first time. And Nehemiah is a book that was written about the Israelites and about how they came back from being captive in Babylon. You may have heard the story of Daniel being captive in Babylon in Daniel 1 through 6. Some of you have been studying that this week. But this was after they were coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And uh, this coming back was actually miraculous. They had been in captivity 70 years and now they were coming back. And it was only through the providence of God that they could come back. God had moved on the heart of the king who had given them resources to come back. He had moved on the heart of a very important guy named Nehemiah who actually served the king's food to him or tasted it to make sure it was okay and tasted everything he drank. And he had had a personal revival. He had a personal prayer time that led to planning and the idea of going back and building the wall. Now, lest you think this is all made up, you can go to Jerusalem today and you can actually see a section of Nehemiah's wall and you can touch it and walk on it. Well, maybe not walk on it because they, you know, they don't want it breaking down, but the wall is actually there and you can see it. And they actually rebuilt that wall and all the gates that went into the city in just 52 days. Everybody said that was a miracle. Everybody said, God had to have helped you with that. And there were all kinds of people that were trying to make sure it didn't happen. Some from the outside, some from the inside. Some had to be ignored. Some had to be rebuked. And yet, God led and the wall was rebuilt in just how many days? 52 days. Amazing. But that wasn't the big story in Nehemiah. The first chapters talked about a physical rebuilding of a wall. And the last chapter, starting in chapter 7 and on, talk about about a spiritual reviving, a refocusing on mission and the message of, of God's people. And this all came as a result of the public reading of God's word in Nehemiah chapter 7. That led to a real conviction. How many of you have read God's word and said, oh man, I didn't see that. I really shouldn't have been doing this or I shouldn't have been doing that. How many, that ever happened to anybody besides me? So that led to a public conviction that then in Nehemiah chapter 9 led to a public confession. And all of these things were motivated, especially as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 9, by God's goodness. They couldn't believe it. He's brought them back. They were in captivity. He helped them build a building. He helped them get everything together, put down the attacks within, put down the attacks from without. It was miraculous. And they realized that the goodness of God had really been active, and that led them to change their mind. The way we say it is to repent. The word repent means to change your mind. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 10. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. 
You could say Nehemiah was a big um, New Start program. You could say it was a big depression recovery program because they were coming out of depressing bondage and they were now coming back to live the life they should have been living. And this conviction and confession and, and, and conversion and changing of their minds now was leading to a public commitment. And we read about it actually in our scripture reading, verse 36 and 38 of chapter 9. Here we are, servants today, and the land you, in the land that you gave to our fathers. You can almost hear the wonderment. How did we get back here? Here we are, we're back in the land, and look, there are fruits, and there's bounty. Verse 38, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant, and we write it, our leaders and the Levites and the priests seal it. We're servants. We want to be sealed. We want to serve you. We want to be signs for you. We are coming out of depression and anxiety and out of despondency, and we're coming back to serve and rejoice in your city because of your goodness. So how was this commitment then demonstrated? First of all, like we just saw, number one, and we have, I think, what, five points here of how this was demonstrated. Oh, six. Number one, there was a public acknowledgement of God's goodness, just like we saw. You gave this to us. You gave us the fruit. You gave us the bounty. You can just see them eating the figs, eating the fruit, and holding it up and say, God, you gave this to us. We should still be in captivity, but you gave it to us. How many of you are aware of goodness of God in your own life today? And everything about what God had done was unselfish. His unselfish love had set the stage for them to learn themselves unselfishness. You have served us, God, and we desire to serve you. You see, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And by the way, the God of the Bible is totally unlike other gods. How many of you have ever studied, studied other gods? The Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Greek gods. I was just reviewing some of them recently. Okay, get this as a name for God. God's name, the original God in Greek lore, was chaos. How many think that sounds great? <laughs> chaos. He gave birth to Gaia, Tartarus, Urbis, Night, and Eros. Urbis and Night then got together and gave birth. This is literally what they said in these sources, and millions have worshipped these gods. Urbis and Night gave birth to doom, death, deceit, and discord. <laughs> Talk about uh, a great group of kids. <laughs> Chaos. Doom, death, deceit, and discord. Now, discord, he got together as well with someone else. <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. This is right out of There's only two sources for this. The Bible has 66 authors. They have like two authors for this stuff. Here it comes up. From discord gave birth to murder, slaughter, battle, and crime. That were their names. Oh, murder, we worship you. Oh, slaughter, please. Go to someone else's house. Battle and crime. And then Gaia and Uranus... The mother of earth, Gaia, and Uranus of sky, gave birth to the Titans. You think it's getting better? No. The Titans come up. 
and they have 50 heads and 100 hands each. They're immoral, they're selfish, they're mean, and everything about these gods shows them coming into human history to take advantage of people to do terrible things. That's just the Greeks. The Romans get even worse. How many of you are thankful for the God of the Bible? The goodness of God, the unselfishness of God. And look at this. The Bible says that he chose you. Well, let me read it. These are the books they were reading that led them to make this commitment we're going to talk about today. I have not chosen you because you're more in number, but because the Lord loves you. I just love you. That's it. I'm not choosing you because you're beautiful. I'm not choosing you because you have money. I'm not choosing you because of your position. I'm not even choosing you because of your goodness. I'm just choosing you because I love you. Amen. <laughs> 1 John 4, 10 in the New Testament, it says, This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a ransom for our sins, a propitiation to pay for what we did wrong. Wow. How many can say that's a great God? Romans 5 says this, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, some people say to me, well, I got to get better and then God will love me. No, 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 no. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in love, he adopted us to himself as sons. So look at these gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. Did they ever come down and say, look, we want to adopt you? No, it's doom, destruction, murder, slaughter. (laughs) Would you even want to be adopted by someone like that? And they never did it. They only came down, and I I could go on in gory detail to tell you what they did. I'll spare you. It's totally opposite the Bible. It's selfish. It's immoral. It's all the things that we would look at today that cause disease, death, and depression. Everything. That's what they did full time. But God did something different. He came down and said, look, I'm going to live among you. I'm going to enter into any pain that you were in. In all your affliction, I'll be afflicted. And I'll come near you to help you through it. And then I'll adopt you as sons and daughters. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, he's not ashamed to even call them brothers. I'm related to them. This never happened in these other pictures of God. In any culture, any culture. In other words, the God of the Bible is an amazing God of love and unselfishness. In fact, if you want to review it, since you weren't here maybe last week, just review Nehemiah chapter 9, because that's what they did. There was a ratio of 12 good things about God versus 6 bad things they did. In other words, God says, I'm going to overwhelm the bad with my good. I'm going to overcome your evil with my goodness. And Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, He made heaven and earth, the sea, and then He preserves them. He changed people's lives for the better, like Abram changed to Abraham. He was not obeying and not believing, but then he he changed. He provided, he protected, he kept his promises. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. He gave them bread. He gave them water. And it says he was forgiving and merciful. It says it eight times. 
merciful, merciful, abundantly merciful, exceedingly merciful, which means he does not treat you as you deserve. He did not forsake them. He was patient with them. And what did this lead them to? They said, we need to make a commitment to a God like that. Because that God is so good, we also want to be good. Because he's been good to us, we want to commit to him. And that's what you see in verse 1 through 27 of chapter 10. It's interesting. It's a public signing of that commitment. And they all come together and they say, look, we're committing to you. We won't read all the names, although I'm tempted. But it started with the leaders, Nehemiah and Zedekiah in verse 1. Then 21 priests and their households, verse 2 through 8. Then 17 Levites in their households, verse 9 through 13. And then the leading families, verse 14 through 27. And then the rest of the people, verse 28. How many of you noticed that we went through a lot of verses very rapidly there? Did you see that? But did you see what happened? It was the leaders, and then it came down, trickled down to everybody. And the goodness of God was embraced by the leadership, and then by all the people, and that goodness of God led them to commitment. True commitment. It wasn't praying about it, but now it's signing on the dotted line. It's putting your John Hancock down. Now, is it helpful to write down things? Hmm? I notice you're writing things down. Is that helpful? All right. Why is that helpful? Well, they know from the reticular activating system of the brain... There's a cluster of cells located at the base of the brain that processes all the information and sensory channels related to the things that need our attention right now. And your brain actually looks at what you wrote down or knows, and it starts to then make everything come together to meet those goals and objectives. If you didn't write it down, it doesn't do it as aptly or as persistently. So if you actually write it down, it helps you. How many of you want to write some things down? We've asked some of you recently to write down your testimonies. What happened now? What, what's hap- what happened before you came? What's happening now? What do you want to see happen in the future? Is that positive to do? That's what they were doing here. In fact... Research also shows that thinking about goals, you just think about them, you'll be 43% more likely to follow through on them. But if you write them down and share them with someone else, you go up to 62%. But if you write them down, think about them, share them, and then say, hey, hold me accountable, I want some updates, it goes up to 75 to 80% follow through. And so here they were in the ancient scriptures doing something that even works today. And that is, what were they doing? Writing down their commitments. Their commitments to the God who had committed fully to them. Wow, how many things might be something we could do? Something we could do. Recent study by De Clemente of people undergoing cognitive behavioral therapy 
I go undergo that every day with my wife. Uh, found and my kids, you know. I remember Elizabeth. Where's Elizabeth? I don't see her. Oh, there she is. I remember when Elizabeth was a tiny little girl. You know the first memory verse she learned from the Bible? Do not rebel against the Lord. That was her memory verse. She followed me all over the house. <laughs> Do not rebel against the Lord. I'm by the refrigerator. Do not rebel against the Lord. I'm by the television. Don't rebel. She was like God's rebuker. She followed me all over the Do not rebel <laughs> against the Lord. So resolutions they found, um, a recent study of people undergoing CBT, found that resolutions were more likely to be kept if they're made in the presence of other people. Some of you are being baptized today after the service. We have a baptism. We didn't announce that, I don't think, right after the service. But that public confession is powerful. It's meaningful. It's not busy work. And that's exactly what's being taught here. So what was the commitment? Let's look at the commitment down there in verse 28 and 29. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nathayim, that's the, the, the temple sweepers, and those who separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. So that's basically everybody who had a frontal lobe working. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath. What's that mean? They'd already experienced the curse of the law. They were taken captive to Babylon. Now they're coming back. And they're making an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. Basically, they're making a commitment to live according to God's will. They were praying, not my will, but... Thy will be done. And his will is expressed in his law. I delight to do thy will, O oh my God. Thy law is, is written in my heart, right? So this idea of saying, I want to I do things God's I want to do things God's way, not my way. How many want to say, I want to do things God's way, not my way? That's the commitment they were making. And they were saying, it's not Moses that's speaking, it's God speaking. It's not Moses' law, it's God's law. So sometimes we get confused and we say, you know what? Part of that's from God, part of it's not. I'm going to pick and choose. But that's not what they were saying. They were saying, look, we have seen the comprehensive goodness of God. We have seen that everything he said was going to happen in terms of a curse if we did this way. And we're responsible for it, it happened. But now we've seen he also brought us out. And this goodness of God, this, this, this consistency of God makes us realize we can't pick and choose. It's all or nothing thinking in a positive way. Amen? Right? I'm glad to see you. So, you know, I was reading something about this from an author who, who had just great insights. And this is what the author wrote. Through yielding to sin, men placed his will under the control of Satan. Remember Adam and Eve when they said, look, I, I know you said don't eat that fruit. I'm just going to do it anyway. 
So they, they said, not my will, but the devil's will be done. Right? And he became, that is man, a helpless captive of the tempter's power. What kind of captive? Helpless. God sent his son in our world to break the power of Satan and to emancipate, listen to this, the will of man. So he comes and he says, all right, I'm going to give you another chance. I'll create in a situation where you can't actually exercise your will the right way. He sent him to proclaim liberty to the captives, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free. <laughs> in other words, he sent him to, to run a depression recovery program, you might say. Get them free from addictions. Get them free from the heavy burdens. By pouring the whole treasury of heaven into this world by giving us in Christ all heaven, God has purchased, listen to this, listen to this, you've got to get this. God has purchased the will, the affections, the mind, and the soul of every human being. Look at that person next to you. <laughs> That's what God did for that person. And it was not because they were good. It was because they were bad. And every person you're looking at was bad. And maybe is bad. And he purchased that. And when man places himself under the control, places himself under the control of God, the will becomes firm and strong to do what's right. The heart is cleansed from selfishness. Cleansed from what? And have you ever heard someone say, you know, everybody that's a Christian just does things for selfish reasons? Of course they do, because they're lost. But do they stay selfish? Do they stay selfish? No. How many of you met someone that's actually been converted? That used to be selfish and no longer is selfish? I remember talking, like I said a couple of weeks ago, a man who was visiting, he was dying. In his last week of life, his wife is taking care of him. And he says, you know what? He told me, I'm talking to him at his deathbed. He says, you know what? I used to love that woman for all the selfish reasons. Everything was selfish. But now I can't even move and she's taking care of me. And now I realize that she really loves me. And she's not selfish. And I want to love her the same way. In the last week of his life, he told his wife, I love you with agape love. And that's what Jesus came. He gave his life to sow unselfishness so that we could become more like him and become unselfish. Listen to this. When man places himself under the control of God, the will becomes firm, strong to do right. The heart is cleansed from selfishness and filled with Christ-like love. The mind yields to the authority of the law of love. Every thought is brought into captivity to obedience of Christ. The members, hitherfore members of unrighteousness, that's is in Romans chapter 6, become members of righteousness and consecrated to the service of the God of love. 
How many think that just sounds amazing? I like another one here. Those who are willing to inform themselves concerning the effect of sinful indulgence upon the health and begin the work of reform, even if from what kind of motives? Selfish motives. So people sometimes come, maybe to programs or maybe to church, or maybe even to reading the Bible with selfish motives. But notice what happens. In so doing, they place themselves where the truth of God can reach their heart. And what's the truth of God? That he loves you even though you're selfish. That he loves you even though you're a sinner. That he loves you even though you're ungodly. And he's just there trying to help you to see some love so you can change. Before it's too late. The goodness of God leads to repentance. I remember I was in San Francisco and we went there and there's a group, a bunch of us, and they were worried. Oh, you guys are Christians. You're anti-LGBT. And they didn't want to let us come. They said, you're going to be, you know, saying mean things. I said, look, I said to the mayor of San Francisco, I said, look, we're not coming there to say anything. We're coming there to do something. And all we're coming there to do is help with whatever health problems people may have. And let me assure you, they had all kinds of health problems. And I told my staff and others, I said, look, don't say a thing about anything. Just take care of the people. And they had like plants. You know, they were trying to see if we're going to say this or that. One guy comes up and he goes, don't you realize this is a place of darkness? <laughs> and I was like, I didn't say anything. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you shouldn't even come here. I kind of almost believed him a little bit there. But we just kept serving. We just kept serving. Powerful things happened. Less than 72 hours later, he comes back to me. He says, hey, you, mister. I was like, what? He goes, this place was a place of darkness, but you guys have helped us. Never said anything judgmental, and the place is becoming a place of light. I felt impressed at the time. I said to him, I said, I don't know why I even said this. I said, is your dad... A minister? I know why I said it. Because I had been very evil and my dad was a minister, so I had that idea. <laughs> Is your dad a minister? And he was like, how did you know that? <laughs> I said, I don't know. How did you know that? And he goes, what do you think I should do? I said, I think you should be about your father's business. Another time, back in the 80s, I was in a, working in an AIDS unit where we were taking care of people that had AIDS. Talk about double-gloving and everything else. And Fauci was still big in the news. He was working on all the antivirals for the AIDS community. He was on the news with bigger glasses and darker hair. It's almost like I, Fauci has never left my life. And anyway, so. <laughs> and we were double-gloving, triple-gloving, everything else, isolation and all that, because everybody was totally freaked out. Remember those years? So I go in there, I'm double-gloving, I'm everything else, I'm taking care of this guy. 
he's got secondary infections. He had amputations, bilateral amputations. He's blind. And I go in there, and I think, this guy's not going to live much longer. I wonder the last time anyone touched him. And I saw on the back of his back a place with no spots or anything. And I made a decision. I closed the door. I took off my glove. I put some cream on my hands. I warmed it up. And I began to rub his back. Don't touch me, he said. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. You're going to die. I said, I said, I don't think I'm going to die. He said, no one has touched me in a very long time. I said, you know what? You know why I'm touching you? Because God loves you no matter what you did. Because God can't love me. I said, why do you say that? Because of what I've done and how I am. And I said, no, God, God loves you even if you're an enemy, even if you're a sinner, even if you... I went through the text. And tears began to come down his eyes. He couldn't see anything, but he began to cry. And he accepted Christ that day. You see, the goodness of God led him to change his mind. Have you experienced the goodness of God in life? Might be through looking at nature. Some people see the goodness of God there. Might be through a relative. Uh, I'm thinking, of course, of my mother. How many of you have ever experienced the goodness of God? And has it changed your mind from being less, being more selfish to less selfish? That's conversion. And it needs to deepen. It can deepen. Someone says, well, why does someone have so much faith and I don't seem to have any faith? Have you heard that? It's true. Some people have more faith than others. It says that. I saw the faith that was in you, then in your mother Lois, and then I'm persuaded in your grandmother Eunice, and also in you. Timothy had a good pedigree. But that doesn't mean you can't increase your faith because it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, to each man is given a measure of faith. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the worst and you have a measure of faith. And it says in Luke 18, you can increase your faith. It says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It can grow. It can build. No matter if you had nothing, you have a mustard seed. It begins to grow. Can you say hallelujah to that? Sometimes the worst people most selfish people have become the best people. And they don't get any credit for it. Who does? God does. Going on in the chapter, it talks about the commitment to, to the law of God. Like I mentioned. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these rests because I'm running out of time but I want to show them to you at least. Verse 30 and 31, notice what it says next. We will not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land brought wares of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the Sabbath.
tenth year's produce and exacting every debt. That's a mouthful, but let's just look at it. After showing a commitment to the law of God, what, by the way, none of these things in this chapter are new. These are all from the Pentateuch. They're all from the first five books of the Bible. And they're also not just for the Old Testament. They're also in the New Testament. If you want to listen to a message on the Sabbath, for instance, listen to my sermon from last night, um, which is basically Hebrews 3 and 4. But let me just say this. Usually the hardest things to relate to in God's Word are when it touches on our love life or the time we want to spend on a weekend. You see that? Well, I know God's Word said it, but my kids have soccer games. i got to do that. I know God's Word said it, but, you know, she pleases me well. She looks good. She, she definitely looks very good. These are both signs of what? Selfishness. And so they said, we better write it out. Because right now, when we're filled with the love of God, when we're filled with the goodness of God, when we see exactly what He's done for us, we're not writing these things down to browbeat ourselves, but we're writing them down now because we're so full of God's love and we see how powerful these things are and how they led to so much pain in our lives. And so we want to write them down. Does that make sense? That's why they wrote them down. Is it still good counsel to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Is it still good counsel to enter into one day a week to have expressions of gratitude about what God has done in creating and redeeming you? Is that still good counsel? Does it, in fact, increase your mental health in a positive way? Could I show you studies that demonstrate that? You believe I can, and then if I ask Dr. Nedley, you're dead. We have all kinds of studies to show that, right? So you got not only a money, you also a honey, you also got money there as well. Because it says, let the Sabbath rest every seventh year. That means that don't even every seventh day rest in God's grace. Say, hey, you're gonna take care of me, even if I don't work. I'm gonna look at what you've done. I'm gonna be grateful for your work all day. And every seventh year, I'm not even gonna go out and I'm a farmer. I'm not gonna even plant anything. And God's going to take care of me. I'm going to demonstrate that I believe in God's ability to take care of me. And his goodness. Hallelujah. And by the way, I'm going to let people off their debts. I will not, verse 31, exact every debt. (laughs) Selfish people don't do that. They don't do that. But these are no longer selfish people because they've seen the selflessness of Christ who delivered them from bondage. And they realized that everything they had was a gift. So they're not trying to be tight with the finances with everybody. They want to work things out. Can you say hallelujah? Unselfishness. How many want to have this unselfishness? You know where it comes from? It doesn't come from writing a list. It doesn't. It comes from seeing what God has already done and is doing for you. And that goodness makes you go, wait, I don't want to forget that. (laughs) I'm writing the list because, wow. Then the last thing, I don't have time to show it to you, but I'll just mention it. Verse 32 through 39. 
32 through 39 relate to the support of worship and ministry in the house of God. Nine times the house of God, the house of the Lord, the house of God, the house of the Lord, the house of God, the house of the Lord. It's mentioned again and again, and every nuance of worship is pictured there. Everything is mentioned, but the big point is this. When you see the goodness of God, you realize that that goodness doesn't work everywhere in society. (laughs) No, you're not going to get it at Walmart. You're not going to get it on a cruise ship. You're not going to get it at a football game. You only get it at the house of God. Everything in these verses is focusing on it. A text to keep the house of the Lord. Wood to keep the fires going for the sacrifices. Fruits for the drink offerings and the fruit offerings for the house of the Lord. Tithes to support the Levites. An additional offering to help the priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Why? Because God works through the church. How many of you have ever had God work through the church in a positive way in your life? You know, when you write down a goal that's consistent with God's word, you know what the Bible says? Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. When you write down something in accordance with God's will, he pays the bill. He makes it come to pass. When you claim a promise of God, he works on that. His divine reticular system says, all right, he wants that goal. It's my same goal. I'm going to work on that. My frontal lobe is going to hook up with his frontal lobe, and I'm going to bring him to the right man or to the right woe man. I'm going to put together his marriage. I'm going to help with his finances. I'm going to be with him through suffering. I'm going to help him see purpose even in when bad things happen to him. I'm going to help him see that all. <laughs> Let me say hallelujah to this. One last thing. One commentating on this said this list was to serve as a reminder of duty and a barrier against temptation. You know, when you have the, 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 the gratitude flowing what God has done at some point in your life where your selfishness is very low and your gratitude is very high, that's the time to write a list like this. Say, look, I, don't want, to rem- I want to remember when I was riding on the high hills of the earth and you were feeding me with the heritage of Jacob. I want to remember that. Because I'm going to get hit with temptations again, but I want to remember that. Hallelujah. Another thing it says, the list was meant to acknowledge the righteousness of God's dealings with them. And to show them how to manifest faith 
in his promises. Well, what do you think? How many of you think it's time to write a list? Kevin, Julie, stand up. They have an announcement. And did she say yes? yes. Amen. <laughs> Have a seat. Come to my house for lunch. I need to talk to you. So anyway, <laughs> let me just say something. When I was about that stage, I was dating Luminitsa. That's my wife. Remember this, dear? Remember when we got married? We got married, like, man, I tell you what, I was very in love with Luminitsa. She was very in love with me. And we came to that day of commitment. We were the least selfish, we thought we were at least, until we had kids and we realized we had some stuff to work on. But anyway, <laughs> we were so in love that we decided we would write out our marriage vows ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing usually good comes out of that. But anyway, we wrote these vows. Remember these vows, dear? They were like pages long. I promise to, you know, love you even if the trash falls over on my foot. I promise to love you even though I, you, you know, I'm... Anyway, I won't go into it all. It was detailed. It went on and on. And my dad read the vows he was like, man, this is a, quite a vow. But you know, my wife likes watching those vows now. Does you remember when you said that? <laughs> because there's a way, when we really love someone, we make comprehensive commitments. Did you write out your vows? I think you did. You did. In fact, this morning, the early service, 8 o'clock, first service today, I said what I just said, and someone comes up. This really made me look bad. He comes up. He reaches into his pocket. It was almost slow motion. And he pulls out his vows. And he goes, I carry these with me at all times. I was like, oh! Oh, that is too high. It's lofty. I cannot attain it. <laughs> but you see, when you're in love, when you're in love, you want to even add to the list. You want to even add to the list. I want to have that kind of love. Now look, today, if you don't have that kind of love, don't just try and write out stuff. Try and go back and ask yourself, how is it that God has shown his goodness to me? Get yourself full of praise. Look at how bad you are. Write that down too, related to how good he's been. And then write out your list. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.